What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy, and we are here to preview week seven of college baseball. We are fast approaching the midpoint of the season. That, that'll happen uh, you know, within the next week. It's a 15-week regular season, so there's no true midpoint in terms of weekends. But we're, we're just about there, and we've got a loaded weekend uh, this week. We've got Tennessee and Vanderbilt. Uh, in a huge rivalry showdown, uh, you've got ranked matchups of the ACC and the Pac-12. You've got some other great rivalry series around the country. So we've got a lot to get to today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, so we're, we're excited to do that. And Joe, we're, uh, we're, we're like I said, we're about halfway through the season and, and we're, we're chugging along. And we've got this was a big rivalry midweek. Uh, kind of slate you had Florida and Florida State, Texas and Texas A&M on Tuesday night, and, and we're rolling right into more rivalries this weekend, which uh, you love to see around the country. Yeah, no doubt it was a it was a pretty good midweek. Like uh, you know, some of these midweek weeks just kind of roll by, and it feels like not a, not a ton happened. But uh, this was a midweek that kind of drew me in a little bit and watched some stuff and, and paid attention to some stuff. And you know, I I am generally um, I think I am. I think we both understand the place of midweek games in the grand scheme of things. I tend to be a little more pro midweek games than you are, but I I'll admit to really snapping to attention on midweek games come May. And I've said this before on the podcast, but once you get into May, you really can kind of understand the value of midweek games on a week to week basis, right? If you've got two potential at large teams facing off, or if you've got a situation where, Hey, this mid major program is toying with being an at-large team and they actually have a shot at an sec team this week like that could be helpful you know so that stuff kind of becomes more clear and so while i i do often make the point that you know february midweek games count as much as weekend games in may um even i have to admit that i kind of have to wait until may for midweeks to always catch my attention however i sell that and this midweek was really one that that did catch my attention because there were there was a lot of interesting stuff even kind of a little more off the radar like you know, Alabama and South Alabama played a really good game, you know? Um, so there was just, I found myself flipping kind of like it was a weekend almost, which was kind of a nice, uh, Nevada, Oregon state thing. I was, uh, I was, um, uh, kind of gra- grasping for the other one I was thinking of that was a really good game on Tuesday, but I watched a little bit of that one. Um, so that was, that was kind of a neat, a neat little feature. That's not always the case on, on Tuesday. So it felt like a nice entree into kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, as you mentioned up top, there's really no real midpoint, but we are approaching it here. And it, that felt like a nice entree into, okay, let's, let's kind of get serious about, about this season. And I think it's probably also fitting that comes the week before the final four national title game in college basketball, which for the more casual fans tends to be kind of the, uh, the point at which attention might begin to turn to college baseball more so than college basketball. Yeah, this is maybe the last time 
that we're we're just talking in a more intimate like this these are the college baseball fans here uh, i don't know i don't know how much our i i could look at the numbers to see how much our, our listenership increases after the final four you're pretty hardcore if you're listening uh, to the Baseball America College podcast, which comes at you twice a week during the regular season. So make sure you're subscribed to your favorite podcasting app. Uh, so subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find and follow slash subscribe. Uh, speaking of the final four, Joe, before we get into our series that we're going to preview Eric Church canceling his concert in uh, San Antonio. Eric Church, country star, also noted North Carolina fan, uh, canceling his concert on Saturday to watch UNC play play basketball. Um, not, we, we have no takes, uh, much like the Will Smith situation. Uh, we need we need more time. I'm waiting for Eric Church to call me back and kind of explain this to me a little bit more. Uh, but if uh, do you think anyone would ever cancel their concert for a, for a college world series game? Oh gosh. I mean, if it, I mean, if there was some sort of Mississippi based like country artist who was on the road, like last June when Mississippi state was in the finals, I think that would have been the scenario. Right. I mean, like that, I think we, we probably just were faced with the the ultimate scenario of that kind of thing happening. And uh, I, I was not aware of, of anything like that. So <laughs> it, that's how we'll know. Nice for- Baseball gets like this is going to change now with the slight rejiggering of the the finals, but like baseball does get a bit of a break with the Monday through Wednesday. So like, uh, you know, I I, mean, I know concerts happen at any day of the week in June, but you know Monday through Wednesday you're probably a little bit more clear than Friday through Sunday. I'd actually like. Um... I'd be interested in. Fi- I've always been fascinated by this, like the point you just made. Concerts happen like every day of the week, especially during the, the good weather months, because, you know, outdoor venues become more of a thing, yada, yada. I've actually always been interested, like hit me up on Twitter. If you're someone involved roughly in the music touring space, because I, I would be fascinated to learn a little bit how you draw up a tour and like, what cities do you put on Saturdays? Do you put cities on Saturday, the big cities on Saturdays, or do you kind of assume that the big cities are going to draw no matter what? So you put the smaller venues on the weekends. Like, I, you know, I, I just kind of be fascinated in that whole because it's not random, certainly. And I have to imagine there's like a lot of data that goes into deciding what days to do, you know, to be where. Um, and of course, logistics traveling wise is part of it. But um, anyway, so that's probably like a Hail Mary there. But if you are involved in like the music touring space, uh, hit me up because I have a number of questions that I've always wondered and. Teddy really just gave me an opportunity to, to jump out there and make a make it an ask for someone to, to give me information on that because I that's something that's been rattling around my brain for years now. I think it happened probably when I went to a concert on a Wednesday or something and was like, mm, "This is interesting." Like I've never really thought about it this way, but like ideally, concerts would just be on the weekends, but you can't really do that if you're doing like a big time tour, you know. So, um, but anyway, I I fully support Eric Church you know, just living his best life and being like, you know what, it's more important to me to watch this basketball game. On the other hand, I understand why his fans are a little bit upset with it. Uh, Somebody did joke too, by the way, um, I was listening to another podcast. It's actually the CBS Ion College Basketball Podcast. And uh, they mentioned that somebody had tweeted that it's the most like North Carolina thing ever that uh, Eric Church went to App State and he's uh, instead like still just a UNC basketball fan. Like, and that is um, like, like a Homer to the extent that he's willing to concert, cancel a concert. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's just like a very, uh, you know, Car- Carolina basketball is one of those brands um, that, you know, 
if you are kind of from this state that oftentimes regardless of where you actually went to school it is a fandom that just kind of sticks with you so um that did seem very uh, quite fitting in that case i i would definitely agree with that i uh i would love if like kevin gates had to cancel a concert so that he could watch lsu baseball in the in the finals or i also feel like tennessee maybe could pull this off and maybe that's just because uh you know tennessee and its proximity to um you know to the the country music capital there in nashville like i just feel like there's got to be some country music star that is a big tennessee fan and you know since it's been so long since the vols played uh for a national title that maybe maybe they would uh be be that excited about it um clearly it hasn't happened with vanderbilt we would know if it happened with vanderbilt uh to this point but maybe maybe there's a vols super fan uh out there on the the country music circuit i'm trying to think of like musicians that are closely associated with different schools and like I was thinking about how I mean, there's that old Miss uh, ex baseball player who is some sort of country music singer now, whose name I'm totally blanking on. Yeah, I mean, country music is like a a re- just so the listeners understand, like a real hole in the musical knowledge of <laughs> Joe and Teddy, and like I was like. <laughs> I mean, that's especially true. Like musical knowledge in general is a, just a big hole in, uh, you know, Joe's uh, knowledge, unless we're going to be start really talking about like, you know, classic rock or something like that. The stuff I grew up on. Um, Brett Kion, music. that's the Ole Miss guy. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Current music, not exactly my, my bag here. But as I was as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, the only example I come up with is there's a country singer, Cole Swindell, like famously wears a Georgia Southern hat like all the time. So I was like, well, Georgia Southern gets there, I guess. I mean, that's maybe yeah, if they one. get to Omaha. I mean, we don't even need them to play for a national title. Like getting to Omaha yeah. would be a big enough deal. Yeah. So like maybe maybe that's it. I don't know. But uh, certainly that, that again, that's how we'll know that college baseball has really made it when we've got people out here canceling concerts to watch games. That's, that's the new, that's the new bar. Well, speaking of Tennessee and Vanderbilt and the country music capital of the world there in Nashville, let's, let's head to Nashville, uh, to get our, our weekend preview started here. It's a huge one. It's maybe the biggest series in the history of the rivalry. And I feel like I also said that last year, but this is potentially bigger than it was last year. It is number one, Tennessee, traveling down the road to Nashville, uh, number 11, Vanderbilt. Huge, huge rivalry series. Obviously, Tennessee in their first week at number one, coming off of that sweep at Ole Miss. They now face another big test as they travel to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, of course, coming off of a series loss at South Carolina, uh, which you know that did take a little bit of the juice out of this because this otherwise would have been a top five uh, showdown there in Nashville that has not deterred ticket prices. I have seen, uh, StubHub prices north of $200 to get in. Part of that is because Hawkins field is as small as it is. Um, I don't think that would be the case if, you know, Vanderbilt had a duty noble or Swayze field or Alex box or Bob Walker stadium sized venue. Uh, but they have what they have and the prices are absurd for, a. Uh, a late March, early, I guess it's early April uh, series today being March 31st. The, this thing starts on April Fool's Day. Uh, so it's a it's a big deal to everyone involved. It's a really exciting series. Uh, you know, all of the matchups, you know, we can dive into here. But just from a pure rivalry standpoint, this is uh, this is fantastic. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, you know, in-state rivals. It's kind of, you know, it's funny. It's. I was going to say it's kind of a blue blood versus little nouveau riche, but that, I mean, 
Which one are you talking about? It's Nouveau Riche. Exactly. Like that, that's exactly my point is that, you know, Tennessee was kind of the old standby, uh, you know, and, and Vanderbilt burst onto the scene and I think is still probably considered Nouveau Riche in the grand scheme of things. And now Tennessee is, feels a little like the new kid on the block, but it is kind of the, you know, the, the older, more typical, you know, sports. Not, not to divert brand. us back to basketball for a second, but th- there's a huge debate in basketball right now for whatever reason about whether Villanova is a blue blood or not. And like, I feel like Vanderbilt is at this point, but it, it also feels a bit like the Villanova debate. Like how much history do you want before you become a blue blood versus yeah. how much like current success are, are you having? And um, Vanderbilt feels like the Villanova of the, of the baseball world. No, I think that's probably, I think it's probably a good, uh, a good uh, comparison to draw there for sure. But it's, so it's interesting that we've kind of arrived in, in that place, but it, it, it feels, it just feels like a huge series. You know, you mentioned the ticket prices. I'd not heard that. So that's interesting that, you know, college baseball, you know, whatever the circumstances are, you know, stadium size, et cetera. I mean, that's cool that college baseball has, is giving us a series that is kind of driving demand in that, in that specific way. And um, I think it's a, I think it's a perfect, a perfect series to kind of um, for, for what the situation that we're kind of in here, right. Where, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm being unfair to Tennessee, but we, you know, we talked, I don't know if it was, well, we've talked a couple of times about it. So I guess it's not just one time, but the idea that Tennessee is a, is a program that, that kind of runs on fire and emotion and um, can kind of have some highs and lows. And, you know, as I was preparing to, to talk about this series, I was thinking about the idea of, you know, this is a road series against a, a Vanderbilt team that typically is pretty just the way that that program operates is typically pretty unflappable is kind of quietly goes about their business. That's their whole MO, right? That's how the program is designed. And that struck me as a situation where, look, if, if Tennessee's, you know, they've been gassed up all week and like my goodness and deservedly so, right. But like my goodness has, I mean, they've spent the week with everybody just fawning over them. Right. I mean, I, even internally here at BA, we've, you know, conversations with people who, you know, aren't covering college baseball day to day, but kind of get roped into it this time of year talking about, you know, just the, the stuff on the pitching staff and, and talking about, you know, the offense and then Ben Joyce and then, you know, Blade Tidwell coming back and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, and this would be a situation where you could easily see tripping up because they've just spent the week getting gassed up. And I, I say all that to say, like, you know, I'm starting to wonder if maybe I'm just being unfair to Tennessee talking about that stuff. Like maybe this just is a different Tennessee team and, you know, let's call a spade a spade. Part of the reason why I think they have that reputation for one, we saw it last year. They earned that reputation with, you know, they, um, you know, went to and out in Omaha and and just looked flat. Right. Um, So that reputation was not without merit. However, you know, I do think part of what I'm doing here is just, you look at a coach like Tony Vitello, who is a, a high energy guy and is an intense guy. And, um, you know, rubs some people the wrong way and is kind of brash. And, you know, maybe I'm just projecting that out to, to every, everything else in the program. But, you know, I, I am starting to wonder if that was, a, that was a, a decent talking point to have earlier in the season, but I'm starting to wonder if I, you know, it's, it's being a little bit unfair to this particular group to just kind of assume that at some point there's going to be like a little bit of a letdown here because that's, that, that's kind of what we're expecting. That, that may not be the case with this team. I mean, they're probably still going to lose a series because that's college baseball, right? However, it doesn't have to mean that they did so because they're they they're they they were flat or just weren't prepared or they're riding some sort of roller coaster. It could just be because that's baseball. Um, 
And so it's just a little bit of self-reflection I think I've been doing over the last few days. I mean, I do think at this point, there's no, there's no real justification for it anymore. Uh, you know, they went to the, the Shriners tournament in Houston, played on a huge stage, uh, went two and three. They went to a sold out Swayze Field and blew Ole Miss out for two games and then won a tight game on Sunday to finish off a sweep. I don't know how much more big game Tennessee you want to see before you uh, just have to say like, you know what, like last year, maybe that was a, a, maybe that was last year's makeup. You know, there's been so much turnover there. Maybe this year's team, uh, you know, having gone through what they went through last year, having played on the stage in Omaha, having played on a crazy super regional stage at home in Knoxville, having gone through all of that, you know, maybe the, this group of players is, you know, just in a different spot and, um, you know, they do have some big, some freshmen who were absolutely not a part of that team. Uh, but they also aren't, you know, that those freshmen aren't, aren't in any way, uh, you know, affected by the losing that, that happened, you know, in years past that they're, they're just not a part of that narrative. They only know Tennessee to be this, you know, college world series level team. Uh, and, and so like, that's the way they act. And, um, I am more concerned for Tennessee based on the fact that we have had the number one team in the country lose three straight weekends. And they, in those, those teams in the last three weeks have accumulated, I think it's just two wins. Texas went, uh, or three wins. Texas went uh, and, and won a midweek game. And then they won one game at South Carolina. Uh, Notre Dame, I guess it was, they, they all won the midweek game. Notre Dame won midweek and then got swept. So, but the point is that on the weekends for the last three weeks, the number one team in the country is just one in eight. Uh, and how Tennessee faces another really tough series as, uh, as they, they head down the road to, to Vanderbilt. So either we're going to get a number one team repeat for the first time in nearly a month, or we're going to have another new number one team come Monday. We, uh, we talked a little about with, uh, with Vanderbilt, one of the things about them this year is, is you and I, after they lost this a series this past weekend, we kind of just, uh, shrugged our shoulders and said like, I, I don't know. It's uh, I don't, it doesn't seem like anything's really wrong here. And yet, you know, they've, you know, they've lost a couple series and it's one of those things that you can say the sentence, you, you can say this sentence two different ways and it can kind of have two different meanings, despite it being literally the same words. You can say, well, you know, they've, they've played two really difficult, you know, two difficult series and they lost both of them, you know, and, and that you can shrug that off as like stuff happens. Right. Um, you can also say it with the inflection, like, well, they've had two tough series and they've lost both of them, you know, and that's just a, a different inflection with the same exact words that gives it another meaning, um, which is to say that, you know, I, you know, we're, we're still kind of waiting to see exactly who this Vanderbilt team is because the numbers look good. Like there, there's really nothing you can point to that has gone wrong per se. And yet again, you know, they're, they're two tough a series they've lost and they're, they were both pretty close series losses. Um, but you start to, to find things that have, have gone wrong. You really have to start nitpicking a little bit, right. Where it's like in the eight, two loss to, to South Carolina, they, they had nine hits, but only cashed in two runs or that in the two losses to South Carolina last weekend, the, the bullpen was a little bit leaky, you know? Um, but on the grand scheme of things, like those are just kind of little isolated nitpicks so far with, with what they've done. So it's, 
it's a team that we think is very, very good, but it's, I still have to admit, I, I don't have a great feel for them necessarily. As we record here on Thursday morning, we have not seen Vanderbilt's, uh, you know, announced starters for the weekend. That's going to be very interesting. I assume that you're not going to see a change in the first two spots of McIlvain and Holton. Holton was bad for the first time last weekend against South Carolina. Tim Corbin suggested after that series that maybe Holton had been tipping pitches. Um, you know, we'll, We'll see if 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 that was true, if he's able to, to make that correction or if Tennessee is going to see the same thing South Carolina saw, uh, which would be very bad news for, for Holton and, and for Vanderbilt. Uh, but what they do uh, with that third spot is going to be interesting. Patrick Riley came in and was outstanding in a long relief uh, effort for Holton. He'd been more he has been to this point, been more of a, uh, you know, second half of a piggyback. You know, he's thrown just as many innings as I think any of the Vanderbilt starters basically this season, but they've all been in relief. Um, so what they do with Patrick Riley this weekend uh, is is something that's very interesting to me. He's pitching like he should be in the rotation, but obviously Vanderbilt has you know plenty of arms and can set up their their staff any way they want. Uh, so I, I will be curious to see. Uh, whatever Riley pitches, it's going to be vital that he pitches well. So it's just a matter of, is that, is that in the rotation? Is that continuing in, uh, in more of a lawn relief role? Um, Vanderbilt also quietly has gotten a little bit beat up on the mound. Nick Maldonado hasn't been healthy. Um, you know, so they've been missing him. Christian Little missed last weekend at South Carolina for an off the field issue. Um, Vanderbilt's been, not surprisingly, a little, uh, little cloudy on when he would return. Um, it sounds, if you listen to what Tim Corbin has said about Christian Little, it sounds a little bit like what he said about Austin Martin a few years ago uh, when, I think it was Martin's sophomore year, he was missing for like a week or two. And, uh, you know, there are certain things you have to do off the field for in any program. Um, and I can't remember what Austin Martin did, but it was like he missed class maybe or something like that. So anyway, I don't know if Christian Little will be back yet this weekend. Um, that would be big for Vanderbilt if he is, obviously. Uh, so their pitching situation is in a little bit of a state of flux. That's not the state you want to be going into a, a series against the team that's leading the nation in home runs and has perhaps the most powerful offense or the, the best offense, certainly the most powerful offense, but maybe the best offense in the country. Uh, so that that is uh, that is one thing absolutely to watch. You mentioned Blade Tidwell, how he made his uh, season debut on Wednesday. He threw one inning out of the bullpen. Um, Tidwell had been out with some shoulder issue. I can't, I don't remember that they've ever actually uh, completely said what that that issue was. But he had been sidelined for the first six weeks by a shoulder issue. He he is back. I don't know what you're going to see out of him this weekend. If, you know, if you do see him, it would probably be for another one in a bullpen stint. They have to build him back up. Uh, and he, you know, he just had, has that one inning so far, but the, the more innings he gets, the better that is for Tennessee. Obviously this weekend, it's not going to be a big part of their pitching staff, uh, but that is part of the Tennessee situation moving forward is getting Blake Tidwell, who was a preseason all American, uh, getting him back to full strength and then getting him into some role, whether that continues to be a bullpen role throughout the season or whether he eventually moves into the rotation. Of course, to do so, you'd have to bump one of the three guys who have been so good so far this season. 
Uh, but that that's a problem for a few weeks down the road for, for Frank Anderson and for Tony Patello. One thing to watch among the pitchers, but the catcher Evan Russell as well, that, that I thought was going to be a real soft spot for Tennessee is, is holding base runners. And that's obviously a particularly important challenge when you've got an offensive with Vanderbilt led by Enrique Bradfield, who is 16 for 16 in stolen bases this season. And as good a natural base dealer as, as college baseball has, um, you know, looking at it in, in, you know, I'm not obviously a Tennessee beat writer, so I'm not keeping up with the day to day, but numbers wise, you know, they've, they've only allowed 27 stolen bases on the year. And I think five or six of those were, I think it was more like six were in the game against Baylor and Houston. And that's when I kind of had this moment of like, uh Oh, like this could be a real issue for them. So I don't know if it's that teams just aren't, and, and we know in baseball generally, right. Not just in college baseball in baseball, generally stolen bases are not, um, you know, are not what they used to be. There are certain programs in college baseball that steal a ton of bases still, but it is not necessarily a widespread strategy. So maybe there's that at play. Maybe they've done a better job of, of holding runners with the pitchers because that was during that Baylor game. That was part of the issue. Chase Dollander was on the mound and he was kind of slow to the mound and they were taking advantage. Um, is it that Evan Russell has gotten better? Um, it could be all of those things, um, but certainly they're going to have to be on the top of their game if uh, against Vanderbilt in that regard, not just for Bradfield, but they've also got some Vanderbilt has some good athletes just in general in that lineup. They can make things happen on the bases. So that is something to watch. And if, if um, you know, if Vanderbilt can really expose Tennessee in that way, it can put a lot of pressure on, on Tennessee pitchers that have really, um, you know, cruised is maybe too strong a word, but have, have really pitched well and have been able to kind of pitch free and easy with the way they've been able to limit base runners so far this season. And Vanderbilt could certainly cause it a unique challenge in that way. I'm going to be interested to see whether this is a more offensive series or a more pitching based series. It could go either way. Uh, they both have the, the lineups that can you know really put a hurting on a pitching staff. They both have pretty solid pitching staffs themselves. Obviously to this point, Tennessee's has been better, but uh, you know, we know that that Vanderbilt has the ability to really pitch. Um, so I, 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 this, this is a fascinating series to me at this point. I don't think you can expect um anything, you know, any sort of hiccup coming from, from Tennessee, but at some point they will lose a series and, you know, this is two tough road series in a row. Uh, you know, so it could come this weekend. It might not, but I, I do expect this to be a very well-played series all weekend long. And, um, you know, I, I also love the fact that it's coming at a time when ESPN has more uh, bandwidth to dedicate like main channels of ESPN to college baseball and presumably softball as well. Now, you know, they, because they broadcast the women's basketball tournament, the last two weeks, they've really been full up on, on women's basketball, uh, which is great, but it, it, it limits what else they can show. But now with them just in the final four, they just have those three games to, to fill out, um, you know, the rest of the season. Uh, and I guess they also have had to fit the NIT stuff in and all the rest of that with basketball really winnowing down. Now you get some more opportunity for college baseball to get on TV. And so the first game of this series on Friday night, you can watch on ESPN two and the second game is on sec network. So it, it's not a streaming situation this weekend. If you're, if you're trying to watch this series, which I always appreciate. Yeah. And, and we, you know, it, it can't be overstated how important it is for college baseball to be on actual TV because for folks like you and I, and I think for a lot of our readers and listeners, there really isn't a lot of difference in whether something is on 
SEC Network Plus or SEC Network, or I think a, a better example is on ESPN2 versus being on SEC Network Plus or, or what have you. For you and I, not a lot of difference because we're we're watching it on a streaming app regardless. You know, we navigate our apps pretty quickly, but I think about people, you know, like like my dad, and, and he's pretty tech savvy for someone who's approaching 70 years old. So it's not a him problem. It's just a generational thing where he's a lot more likely to stumble upon a college baseball game when he just turns his TV on to his cable package and scrolls to ESPN, whatever. Um, he, so he's more likely to see that, stumble upon it, stick with it um, than he is to mess around with some sort of streaming app, which he's aware of and knows how to use generally, but he's not going to be spending a lot of time on it on a random Friday or Saturday. So, I mean, that's a huge difference for college baseball in terms of exposure. It, it sounds like a small thing for folks who are really tech savvy and understand the streaming space, but for people who aren't quite there yet, it's just such a big difference. I also just think about it as when you open up your ESPN app on your Roku or, or whatever, you know, they put whatever is on ESPN or ESPN two first. That's the first thing you see when you start scrolling. So, you know, if you're, if you're there to watch a specific thing, you're always going to go look for it and that's fine. But if you're just like, ah, like I'm bored, what do I have on ESPN? Like you open it up and whatever's on ESPN and ESPN two is, is the, th those are the first things or SEC network or ACC network, the point, like they're over the air channels or what they're highlighting in that top bar. And so if you turn it on this weekend, you're going to see more college baseball there uh, than you otherwise would. And yeah, I, I, that's a huge thing. And there are numbers that support like just being on, you know, major, uh, being on ESPN is more important than being on ESPN two and being on ESPN two is better than being on, uh, ACC or SEC network and being on those is better than being on streaming all the rest of that. But, uh, so I, I'm happy we have reached the point of the season where when I'm entering in where to watch things, uh, in, in the weekly preview, I can put in ESPN and ESPN two and, um, but a, a few less pluses that that's always a, uh, a plus for me, if you will. Hey, -oh. we're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's uh, let's move on to something you do need streaming to see because uh, this one is on ACC Network Extra. Notre Dame is headed to Florida State. Uh, this is an interesting series, Joe. Florida State has moved into the top five. 
they uh, they've played very consistently all season long. Uh, they haven't swept a series since opening weekend, but just the consistency of their play has pushed them into the top five. And we know how good their pitching staff can be. And they get this series at home. Notre Dame has hit a skid after starting the year so well and vaulting to number one in the top 25. Uh, they've now lost uh, four straight ACC games as Louisville swept them two weeks ago and last weekend their series against Virginia Tech was limited to one game which they lost we talked about that uh in the Monday recap uh the the circumstances in which that happened and the rest of the weekend was uh uh was lost to poor weather in the Midwest they now have the the unenviable task of heading down to Tallahassee and facing this Florida State pitching staff uh, this is also adding intrigue to this is that Florida State was the one team in ACC play last year and until Super Regionals uh, to beat Florida State in uh, to, win, to win a series against Notre Dame. Florida State was the only one to do that. They did it in South Bend last year. And further intrigue is that you know you have Notre Dame coach Link Jarrett and Florida State coach Mike Martin Jr. They were teammates. Uh, at Florida State in the in the 1990s and, and were part of the 1994 Florida State College World Series team. That was me struggling with the mute button, just uh, for everyone who was wondering what that little gap there was. Um, no, that's interesting. I actually did, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I guess I, if I'd have thought about it, I might've come to that little nugget about the, the opposing head coaches there, but had not, had not come to that conclusion. Uh, I, I got asked about, um, I was on the phone with somebody last weekend and they were they were asking just about generally about the ACC and, and my take on it and Notre Dame came up and I said I honestly don't know what to tell you about Notre Dame like just from a from a from a little literal standpoint like we haven't seen much of them right I mean they were supposed to have played nine ACC games right now and they played six you know I mean they all kinds of partial series what we have seen from them is is not been particularly inspiring they've already struggled more this season. They really did all of last season. Um, so I don't, I don't know, I, you know, they're, they're a little bit uh, Vanderbilt ish in that it's hard to know exactly what the issues are here. Although I, I feel a little more confident with theirs that in, in their ACC games, at least that the bullpen has not been particularly good. Um, they've still gotten some decent starting pitching, especially from John Michael Bertrand, but the bullpen just hasn't been dependable for them in a way that, it was last year when they were really just piggybacking a bunch of guys and using six guys and they've got more depth this year, but so far that depth has kind of let them down in some spots. And so that feels like a, a key difference there, but otherwise um, again, it's, it's, you know, you look at the numbers and it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the, what the issues have been here. Um, you know, and, and while I'll stop short of saying that, you know, there was some sort of magic that Notre Dame had um, last year, uh, that, that has been lost this year. I don't think it's quite that much, but, but I do think it, it does go to go to show that there is something to um, a team just kind of finding its stride as a group, which I think they clearly did last season and year over year, even if you bring back that same team, it's not the same season. You have to kind of treat it as, as a whole new entity, a whole new, um, you know, living organism a team is. And so I, I do think there is a little bit of something to that Florida state, obviously, presents such a difficult challenge on the mound. And we've talked a lot about Parker Messick and, and Bryce Hubbard and understandably so, but I mean, they've really got three Friday guys. When you talk about those two plus Ross Dunn, whose stuff is real and whose numbers are right there in line with those other two guys, you know, all three of them 
have, you know, way more than a strikeout per inning. I mean, the strikeout per nine for Florida State's pitching staff is just unreal at this point. They all have opponent batting averages under 200. Like the, the ERAs are all very good. Like it's just a one, two, three, just as good as anybody out there. Um, and that that's going to be a particular challenge for a Notre Dame lineup that, that is good and deep and gives a team, gives opposing pitching staffs a lot of different looks. But to me, that that's where it starts. That This series, I think, is on the arms of Florida State, because if those three guys pitch the top of their ability, like I'm just not sure there's any sort of lineup that can do enough to win a series against those guys, because one of them can have an off day and you still got to beat at least one other pitcher in order to win a series against Florida state. So to, to me, it's on those arms. If they pitch as well as, as they can, it's just going to be so, so difficult to win a series. Yeah. I don't think Notre Dame is the team to take on or to take down Florida state. I, I think that you know, they're definitely going to lose series, probably multiple series this year. Uh, the fact that they haven't swept anything since opening weekend to me is a little disconcerting because, you know, in, when you look when you look towards the postseason, like you're going to play really high end teams and, you know, you, you, you can't all be about your starting pitching and you, you gotta, you gotta find other elements and Florida state has time to grow into those other elements. They have time to develop more offensive depth and they have time to find the right pieces in the bullpen and all the rest of that. But the fact that they haven't swept a series, it's a little disconcerting to me, but I don't know that Notre Dame, with its offense going to Tallahassee is going to be the team to get it done. Uh, now Notre Dame is very comfortable playing on the road. Uh, they they've done so pretty much all season. I think they've played three home games this year, so they're not going to be phased by going down to Tallahassee. Uh, and that is a significant thing. But, but when you look at the way uh, both of these teams are set up, I think they're set up a little bit too similarly right now for, for Notre Dame to feel like that they, uh, or for me to feel like Notre Dame is, is the team that's going to go, going to go and knock off the Knolls. And you know, the, the Florida state is, is a really, really solid all the way around. Uh, but they, I, they, they really could use a little bit more offense because too often I feel like they have found themselves in tight games. Uh, it, it's happened literally every weekend since James Madison on opening weekend and they've played good competition, but uh they, they got to find another way to, to separate themselves. I feel like. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's funny because I actually think, I think you're, you're right. And also like, like any good uh, improv partner. Yes. And um, <laughs> I do think they have been buoyed a little bit by the fact that they have had some guys who, you know, you and I nece- weren't necessarily talking a lot about in the preseason who have really stepped up. I, I'm talking about guys like Jaime Ferrer and, and James Tibbs, right. In the, in the lineup. Uh, who wasn't who, talking about Jaime Ferrer. <laughs> he was he was the only name on anybody's lips um you know those two guys have been really good so you add him to add those two guys to you know a reese albert who a little bit of a resurgent year for a guy who you know has had an up and down career at fsu and you know they're still kind of i mean i think alex Terrell at this point kind of is what he is right i mean he's hitting i think 264 with you know five home runs or something like i mean that's just seven home runs um that's just kind of who he is. And that's a productive guy. Um, you know, you can't have a team full of those guys, but um, which it's felt, not carrier like, offense kind of guy, but it's a guy you want in your lineup. Yes. Yeah. And that was like at Miami, that was kind of an issue is it felt like they had like several of those guys in their lineup. Um, but as a complimentary piece, that's a nice piece to have. Feels like they're still waiting a little on Brett Roberts to come around. You know, Logan Lacey has been, has been very good. I, I wouldn't say he's been anything better than that necessarily, but I think there is a little more ceiling here to hit. Um, 
because you're right. It, it, it does feel a little light generally. And I look at it though, and kind of think, I think they've actually taken some steps forward, whether or not it's going to be enough, I think is a, is a different question, but I have been, um, inspired by, you know, the, the, some of the steps forward taken by some of those guys, because I, I, I was, I was very concerned about this offense being extra, extra light coming into the season. And while it might still be a little bit light, it, it does feel like they've made some strides that have, have made the group a little more competitive. All right. So that's a top 15 matchup in Tallahassee. Uh, let's head to the West coast for another top 25 matchup. The, the last top, we've got three top 25 matchups uh, this weekend. This is the last one. It is Stanford and Oregon state uh, Stanford heading up to Corvallis. Uh, Stanford is hanging on by a thread in the top 25. And this, uh, in some ways feels like their last chance to prove that they are a top 25 caliber team, that they're a team that can challenge in the PAC 12. They've already lost a couple PAC 12 series. If they, you know, against Oregon and at Arizona, uh, it was very front loaded schedule. You know, the fact that they've had to play Oregon, Arizona, and Oregon State all within the first month of Pac-12 play. Uh, I mean, that suggests easier series are ahead, but this is their maybe their last chance to be uh, a true Pac-12 contender. We'll see what UCLA can be in USC and whoever else in that, that conference. But these are the teams that are supposed to be the best teams. To this point, Stanford has not risen to that challenge. They're one in five against Oregon and Arizona. Now they face a really tough test in Corvallis. Uh, and Oregon State continues to roll right along. They aren't housing teams the way that they were early in the year. They've, they've played more tight games. Uh, they played two really interesting games against Nevada midweek. They came away with two wins, but um, both of them were closer than maybe you would have expected those to be. Uh, they were on the road. Uh, I still really like Oregon State a lot, uh, but th- this is not necessarily uh, – they have cooled off, come back to earth slightly from what they were doing in the first three or four weeks of the season. Still, though, to me, this is the best team in the Pac-12, and, and Stanford now has to to face them on the road. Yeah, I mean, right now it seems pretty clear it's the best team in the, in the Pac-12 as we as we sit here today. You know, part of what slowed them down is, is, is pitching, and some of that is – just bad luck injury wise, right? Like Jake Phoenix has been on the shelf since early this season. He's only thrown seven innings so far this year. So they've never really necessarily been at full strength there, but um, you know, it's a team area that's closer to five than it is to four. Um, so that, that's a little bit of what's slowed them down. What has buoyed them though, is that the offense is just relentless. And it reminds me a little of the Tennessee offense. They obviously don't have the power numbers or anything like that. What I mean by that is that, it is an offense that has crazy depth. They just throw numbers forward at you. I mean, they're when you look at the Oregon State's offensive stats, their stat sheet does not look like any other stat sheet in the country. And I mean that in two ways. One is that in a literal sense, they organize their stat sheet differently <laughs> than most other teams. <laughs> um, that's like a little bit of an inside baseball joke there for like Oregon State fans and, and maybe some other people who look at a lot of college baseball stats. But um but really what I mean by that, though, is that, you know, typically, especially at this point of the season, when you look at a team stat sheet, you can see pretty clearly, OK, these are their like eight to 10 guys who start basically every game. And there's maybe a couple of guys who can like they can take or leave depending on the matchup or whatever. Like Oregon State has guys with I mean, I didn't do I should have done the, the counting before I opened up the stat sheet, but or before I started talking about it. But I mean, they just their lineup is can be 
any number of things on any given day. And they just have guys who on a specific day are just play hero. And that guy might not play the rest of the series, you know, like they're just, they, they really mix and match well. And at times I've in the years when their offense has not been particularly good, I've kind of looked at that as, cause this is, I think been the case, not just with Mitch Canham. I think this was under Pat Casey. It was occasionally like this. And in, in the years when the offense has not been particularly good, I kind of looked at that as like, ah, they're really kind of struggling to find their, their nine guys. And that might've been true, but this year it feels just kind of like a feature of what they're doing, which is that we have a lot of different guys we trust, you know, we, we want to put them in the best positions to succeed. And that can mean a lot of things. And so while there are like guys who have just, you know, come to the, the cream has risen to the top with guys like Travis Bazana, the, the freshman second baseman or Justin Boyd or Jacob Melton. Like there are a lot of guys who just on any given day um, can be the guy, right? Like Matthew Gretler sitting 200, but he's had big games. You know, I, I've definitely written him up as part of the top 25 recaps for having a big game. So um, just, a, I think it's a fun offense and that's really helped them kind of stay afloat in a situation where the pitching hasn't been quite as good or as healthy, frankly, as, as we thought it was going to be. It's kind of crazy that we thought that Stanford was going to have the best offense in the PAC 12, and that was going to help boost them to the top of the standings and all the rest of that. And here it is Oregon state that, you know, I, I thought Oregon state was maybe a more pitching outfit. We we're very excited about what their rotation could be. Uh, but no, it's, it's absolutely Oregon state's offense and the depth and, Bazana has been so good and, and getting Milton back. He, he went down late last season and uh, Oregon state. I mean, that, that, that hurt them. That really hurt them. And getting him back has been a huge boost. And, and he's a, he's a great, great player uh, in that lineup. Meanwhile, Stanford's lineup is still fighting it to an extent. You know, we talked about at Florida state, how there were you know some guys that stepped up that you know, were, were absolutely not the guys that people were talking about coming into the season. And that's, that's been very true at Stanford as well. I don't think we spent a whole lot of time on Carter Graham coming into the year and he's leading the team uh, in, in just about every hitting category that, that you're going to look at. Uh, and I, I mean, he, he's been outstanding OPS of uh, over 1100 and, six home runs and he's hitting 382. And, uh, you know, I, I picked Brock Jones to win national player of the year. And, uh, he's been good, uh, certainly, but you know, you, you would, you, you still expect him to hit more of a stride and, uh, you know, Cody Huff has had some up and down moments and, and, you know, there are a lot of guys like that on Stanford. They just haven't found their stride offensively, but Carter Graham and Brett Pereira, have really been able to carry them through a lot of this. And uh, if they're going to, if they're going to keep pace with Oregon state this weekend, either Stanford is going to have to pitch the way it pitched, uh, you know, at the very outset of the season. And it's really struggled to recapture what it did at round rock. But if they can put together a big weekend on the mound, if Quinn Matthews, uh, you know, can step up and, and Alex Williams can be his solid self and, and they get something out of Drew Dowd, you know, that that's one path, but that's a really difficult path against this Oregon state offense, particularly on the road. If that's not going to be the path, then they're going to need their offense uh, to be able to keep pace with Oregon state. And no team has been able to do that throughout the course of a weekend yet. Uh, we'll see Stanford has the ability to do that, but whether this group is ready to do it this weekend, that's another story. It feels with Stanford, like it's a little been a little bit of a death by a thousand cuts situation in terms of what, has put them in this position where they've underwhelmed so far this season. It's, it's like a, it's no one thing necessarily. It's like a lot of little things where slow start for Brock Jones, although it should be said like, you know, he's drawing walks. So he's, he's clearly 
you know, getting worked around a little bit. And his six um, stolen bases, he's finding ways to impact the game. I, I don't want, like, it's just not the banner player of the year season. It's a good year, and they, they are definitely working around him, but it, it just isn't the big, big, big year that it could have been, or you hoped it would have been. Yeah, like, so, you know, he's, you know, his start has been uneven. You know, Tommy Troy was a guy, who, extremely talented guy, who looked like maybe he was going to take a step forward um, in the Tim Tawa mold of what Tim Tawa was last year, but to this point, he's actually just looked more like the Tim Tawa that was at Stanford his first couple of years. Like right now, Tommy Troy's on that exact path. Um, so he hasn't taken that big step forward after a, a fast start. Braden Montgomery has cooled off. Drew Bowser does not appear to have necessarily at least this point taken a big step forward. So there's that, you know, offensively. And, and then on the mound, like, you know, Quinn Matthews, I think has, has improved. He looks better. Like his, you know, he's missing more bats than, than he has, but you know, Alex Williams has just been solid, exactly solid. Right. And they found some other arms on the mound. You know, Joey Dixon has been great out of the bullpen. Cody Jensen, finally healthy. He's, he's been pitching well, you know, drew Dowd, I think was the guy they were hoping he would be, but there's just not quite as much depth there than I, as, as I think they would have ultimately liked to have found. Um, and so, while it has been maybe better on the mound than it was last year, I do think there has been moderate improvement there. It's just, it's just been that I think is, is moderate improvement in terms of the depth. So a lot of things have, have gone pretty well. Nothing has gone exceptionally well. And there are some things that have been a little bit disappointing for Stanford. And I think you, you add that all up and you get what you get with them here, which is a team that's, that's underwhelmed a little bit so far. And like, I mean, look, if Stanford's going to be the team that we thought they could be coming into the season, like this is a real opportunity, right? Um, we're sitting here talking about how disappointing they've been, but you know, if they win this series, suddenly they're right back in the thick of everything they want to do, do this season. And your point about their schedule so far being difficult is absolutely true. Uh, that's a tough draw drawing, you know, three of their first four series, Oregon, Arizona, and, and Oregon state, the rest of the way will not be as difficult. Um, so, you know, if they can get this series here, all of their big picture goals are right in front of them at a bare minimum, though, it feels important that they just not get rolled here um, because there is an opportunity to make some hay. But if you're coming out of this thing, having gotten like God forbid swept or even losing the series and coming out at, at five and seven, it's, it's just going to be hard to kind of claw your way back all the way to the top of the conference. Yeah. I, th this feels like uh, I mean, I hate to say must win uh, for a series that starts on April 1st, but if you're trying to win the PAC 12 title or really contend for the PAC 12 title, contend to host if you're Stanford this is this is must win and um you know we'll 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 see like we said it's a very difficult task uh going up to Corvallis I don't know what the weather is going to be like uh how that's going to affect the way offenses play but um you know it, it it's uh nothing is going to come easy this weekend uh, against this Oregon State team uh you can you can be absolutely certain of that Stanford is going to have to be at the top of its game if it's going to to come away with uh with the series win here. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's head to Arlington, Texas, where we, we know what the weather's going to be like, because I assume the roof's going to be closed. Uh, this is the Red River rivalry. Texas is taking on Oklahoma in Arlington. They moved this series. I, it was supposed to be in Norman. Uh, they moved it to Arlington in part because of the lockout, uh, kind of opening the Rangers ballpark this weekend. Uh, I don't know if they'll do this moving forward. I think it's a fun deal this year. I hope they put a bunch of fans in there and maybe they can explore doing this going forward. Uh, 
Uh, it's what they do in football. They play that during the Texas State Fair. Um, this is not during a state fair. Uh, I don't know if there's any fair happening in Arlington, but uh, hopefully fans come out for this one because I think it's a it's a really cool deal what they're doing here. Uh, and it's an intriguing series. Texas has obviously been a little more up and down than we would have expected. They're coming off of a really tough series loss in Lubbock. Just, you know, we talked about that on Monday, uh, how, how tough that was, you know, losing two walk-offs in extra innings, out hitting tech, you know, throughout the weekend, they win in a run rule on Sunday. They just weren't able to close out the games on Friday and Saturday. Uh, Oklahoma, meanwhile, uh, has kind of quietly built a solid season. Uh, you know, I, I'm not here to say that they're they're playing amazingly well, uh, but they played a, a pretty difficult schedule. They they've done pretty well against it, and they just are um, you know have have ground out some important series wins. They have a series win against Baylor, and that's pretty significant for the Big 12 standings. If you take it as the the top four teams in the conference, sure look to be. Texas, Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, and TCU, uh, that battle for fifth probably is going to come with some serious uh, NCAA tournament ramifications. And Oklahoma now has the upper hand on Baylor in that regard. So the, the seniors doing some good things. Coming into a, a rivalry series, they won on Tuesday night in a, another rivalry game against Oklahoma State, also in um, – uh, in, in, on, on a neutral site. They played that one in Tulsa and Oklahoma walked off with a win. So they're riding some momentum going into what, what could be a really fun series there in Arlington. Yeah, just um, scheduling being what it was for Oklahoma. This, these will be their 10th, 11th, and 12th games of the season played in a big league ballpark. Um, most of most which of, played in Arlington. <laughs> correct, yes. Um, I think, and I think it's a brilliant little bit of schedule making by this, by this, these two teams. And I assume, you know, that the Rangers, um, because I, I do think there is an opportunity here, you know, obviously playing it in this specific ballpark might be problematic in, in upcoming years, just because the Rangers will often want to be themselves, want to be playing in this ballpark around this time of year lockout kind of created that situation there. So that's not to say it can't be done. You just have to maybe move some things around. Yeah. I mean, I, and, this series isn't locked to any, as right. far as I know, it's not locked to any one weekend. So, you know, you can, you should be able to work with the Rangers. If this works this weekend, you should be able to work with them to, to figure this out. Right. As long as all parties want to make it work, they could figure it out. Um, but that's the, that's the key is all parties have to have to want to make it work. Um, also, you, you mentioned the TV for Vanderbilt. And Tennessee, this one also is getting prime billing Saturday on ESPN2 and Sunday on big ESPN. Friday um, on Soonersports.com, however. Yeah. Uh, very, very strange <laughs> weekend. <laughs> it's going to run the gamut. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting there. But yeah, so you just you just hope for college baseball's sake, like, please do not be one of those stereotypical Sunday games, you know? Yes. Like, give us a quality. If it's on big ESPN, like, please give us a quality, well-played game. Because, like... I just that the worst thing. What happened ha last week in Lubbock cannot happen this week. That would not be a good thing. Yeah, it's just you know, and, and it happens in college baseball. It's nobody's fault. Like it's it's the game we we, we love, but um, you know, for for a mass audience, you just hope Sunday's game on Big ESPN is 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 well played. So um, Oklahoma, to your point, is kind of doing exactly what you need to do if you want to be that team because there are these teams every year you know, a, a, a team in a major conference that 
it mostly takes care of its business, doesn't necessarily do anything overly inspiring and finds its way into a regional because it, it does enough. And you're, I think you're right that the Baylor series win is huge because that felt like a toss up series in a, in a, in a literal sense, but also just in terms of that's probably the battle for four and five in the big 12 right there. And so having the upper I mean, hand West on that, Virginia might have something to say about that, but that's it. Like I would say, yeah, yeah. we're not, we're not yeah. seeing the Kansas schools jump up. So you got, you got right. West Virginia still if you're Oklahoma, but otherwise you, you've probably taken care of the, to your point, that's probably the four and five spot. And or so, five and you six know, spot. I would not have. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Like I would not have, you know, uh, advise them to lose that series to new Orleans. Like that was probably not, but like, you know, those, those, I think we sometimes forget, like I, you know, in, in the moment, I know I'm guilty of over kind of overreacting to series like that when ultimately there are going to be at large teams all over the place that have those head scratching series that feel like big deals that ultimately end up not being big deals because in major conferences, you just have so much more room for error uh, than you do outside of the major conferences. Oklahoma will have plenty of opportunities, but I said it when I saw them in Houston. I stand by it as far as Oklahoma goes. They're top in talent. They can play with anybody. You know, Jake Bennett has been extremely good in the rotation. Their offense is good enough to score. Friday games are extremely important for Oklahoma, I feel like. You know, because if they win a Friday game, they're in good shape because, you know, they, their offense is good enough, I think, that they can win some rock fights on Sunday if it comes down to it. Um, if they lose Fridays, they're really behind the eight ball though, because the, the pitching has just not been consistent as far as the depth goes. I, there's some good arms there. Like there's some individual talents that I like, but it has not ended up in being a cohesive pitching staff yet. But if, if they get into offensive games, they can handle it. So that's where this Oklahoma team gets dangerous is if Jake Bennett can shut you down in the first game and then the Oklahoma offense swings well, one of the next two days, like the Sooners can really play with anybody it's just, it feels like a very narrow path for them to compete against the best of the best uh, nationally and in the Big 12. Here's a crazy thing. You mentioned that they've played all these neutral site games, all of them in, in big league ballparks, um, except for uh, that last one uh, against Oklahoma State on, on Tuesday. They have yet to play a road game. This is this is incredible to me that they have not played a true road game. And, and I don't know what the makeup of this crowd is going to be Joe, I, I don't like you've probably watched more Red River rivalry games than I have. It's always a little strange to me that Oklahoma is willing to go to Texas literally every year. I know that DFW isn't that far from Norman. It's like a five hour drive. But what what kind of crowd do you think? Like, like what, what were we expecting the makeup of this crowd to be? I mean, I think so. Generally, I think you start from a baseline of it being about 50 50. Now, the variable is going to be, you know, um, Texas, I think, even though it's, it's taken some, some hits on the chin the last few weeks, I think is probably in a more positive place about their feeling about their program right now. And so maybe that skews it more towards Texas, but I'd be interested in the breakdown as far as Oklahoma goes in terms of what cities have the highest concentration of Oklahoma alums, because I would assume the Metroplex, Dallas Forward Metro, Metroplex. I mean, maybe outside of Oklahoma City, I would assume there are more OU alums in that area than there are anywhere else. Like, so because you're going to be able to shove so many more people into that stadium than you would have in Norman, like there will be more Oklahoma fans there. Um, but I, I would assume it'll probably be about 50-50, which is often the case at the at the football game as well, because the distance is not that great. And then, like I said, secondarily, 
is when you get into North Texas, there are a lot of Oklahoma alums and just Oklahoma fans in general in the area. So I think they're going to turn out. I, I would be shocked if it's skewed sharply in one direction or the other. I am very intrigued by this. I, I think it'll be a great spect spectacle. <laughs> um, I, uh, I I think you have to look at the horns as, as being the favorites here. Yes, the last three weeks have been a little rockier or last four weeks, whatever it's been, uh, have been a little rockier than, than you would expect, but you know, they, they are the talent, uh, or they, they have the talent to, to go out and, uh, you know, play with anyone in the country, obviously, and, and go out and, and win a series, you know, anywhere. And I love their pitching staff. Uh, you know, Trey Faltini has come along very nicely this year. They're getting some production from, uh, you know, up and down the lineup. We, we've talked about what Texas is and it's just a really solid baseball team overall. So, a really good test for Oklahoma, a, a test to which they haven't had since uh, that Shriners College Classic. They went 0-3 there. Uh, two of those games didn't go well for Oklahoma at all, but they did take LSU to extra innings and probably feel like they should have won that game. Uh, and they did go 2-3 and three on opening weekend, uh, beating Auburn and Michigan, losing um, to Arizona. So, you know, well, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what kind of progress Oklahoma has made over the last you know, three, four weeks since we last saw them on a big stage. So I, I think that's also uh, part of why I'm, I'm so intrigued here. Also, this is in the heart of a really big stretch for the Sooners that started on Tuesday. Uh, they played Oklahoma State. They have Texas here this weekend. They have Oral Roberts, uh, which has been pretty good here this year again next Tuesday, and then they go to Stillwater. So massive we couple weeks here emotionally for the Sooners and if they can navigate this pretty well and uh then things get a little easier for them the back half of the season uh or, or at least for a few weeks until you know they they do face trips still to TCU and Texas Tech but um a, a big couple weeks here for for what the Sooners are trying to do one thing to watch for for Texas just quickly as a parting shot because we, we didn't talk we've talked a lot of Texas in general so we, we focused obviously more on Oklahoma here in this preview but um, in the Tuesday loss to Texas A&M, granted a windy day in Austin, that played a big role. There were several, you know, Jack Moss in particular had a home run that was just like a routine fly ball that just refused to refused to die and just kept carrying. But um, Joe Cook from Inside Texas, their on three um, affiliate, uh, wrote something the other day about, I think nine, it was, let me get the stat right. I wrote it down here. Nine of the 12 runs driven in for Texas A&M came with two strikes. Um, so Texas pitchers kind of struggling to put hitters away. And David Pierce on the broadcast of that game kind of mentioned, he specifically was talking about Jared Southard, but I think he was saying it more generally was that we've got guys with stuff and they need to pitch like guys with stuff because what happens is they're not really establishing their fastballs. And then they start pitching with their secondary stuff as a kind of workaround to that. And then suddenly we're, we're not using guys with as much stuff because they're not throwing their best pitches and, yada, yada, yada. Like he's just basically saying like, we need our guys who have stuff to dominate hitters to start, to start pitching like it. Um, but I think you see a little bit of that with the two strike approach that AM was able to have where, where nine of the 12 runs were scored with two strikes. So a little something to watch going into the weekend. That is a very good nugget. Uh, Joe does good work. If, uh, if you're looking for more on, on the horns, all right, Joe, those are the four series I picked out. Let's uh, let's go a little under the radar around the country this week. Uh, what do you got? 
All right. So a few different things here. We are at um, a point of the season where enough conferences have begun conference play that now it's it's a, it's a little bit easier to pick out the under the radar stuff because now we have kind of I can I can play the results right like I I can look at the conference standings and say oh these are the two best teams in, in X or Y conference which was something that we could not as confidently do you know in week three and four and what have you um, so a few things to look at here um, the ones we will not talk about but I should mention there are a couple uh, Kennesaw State is going to Florida Gulf Coast. Liberty lost a series to Stetson last weekend. However, I still think that conference goes through Liberty. I mean, we still have them ranked, so clearly we, we think that's the case. Um, however, they're both Kennesaw and, and Florida Gulf Coast are both off to good starts. Kennesaw also has a top 25 RPI, something to, to watch there. Um, so interesting series in the in the ASUN there. Um, also in the match, FGCU top 100. This is a huge weekend for both of those teams in terms mm. of at large stuff. FGCU absolutely not out of the at large race. I mean, no one's really out of it right now, terribly so. But, um, that is that's a really interesting one from an RPI standpoint. Yeah. I mean, Florida Gulf Coast wins that series, like they're going to vault and suddenly they'll be in the mix. Like that's just kind of the way it works. We're, we're still early enough for that. We're not too early to start thinking about it, but we are early enough to where a result like this can really change the fortunes for, uh, Gulf coast, um, in the Mac, um, the top four teams are all play in the standings right now, which the Mac has already played a lot of conference games. This is the MAAC, I assume. No, the MAC. Oh, the, 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 the real Mac. Mac. Okay. Yeah. The OG Mac. (laughs) Um, they've, they've already played a lot of conference games in that league. They started in like week three. It was kind of absurd. And I, I had not noticed this. Teddy probably did because he is a graduate of a Mac school. Um, but they're, maybe not all weekends, but some weekends, question mark, playing four games. Don't try and understand it. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Because I just noticed like some some of these teams have played like 10 or 11 maybe conference games already. And I was like, what on earth is like, you know. Yeah, there, there are four game series happening. Yeah, but it's okay. not every weekend, you're right. Like, and I don't personally know the rhyme or reason. Yeah, it seems kind of, kind of, anyway. Um, regardless, uh, the top four teams in the standings as it stands right now are all playing each other kind of in one way or another. You've got Ball State visiting Toledo, which is is having a nice, nice season. Um, and Ohio Feed is going Ohio to... Ohio State on uh, Wednesday. Did. Indeed they did. Yeah, Toledo, nice year for them. And then Ohio going to Central Michigan. Um, we will... I thought about picking one of these, but I wasn't sure which of the two to pick. We will kick the can on the Mac down the road. We, we always shoehorn at least a, a Mac series or two into our preview episodes at some point. So we will... Um, we will keep an eye on that, but, but the top four teams all playing each other in some form this weekend. So that's worth um, paying a little attention to. We are going to stick in the Midwest though. Missouri Valley conference play getting started this weekend, Illinois state traveling to Indiana state, the teams that in my MVC preview, I picked second and third uh, in the conference. I had Indiana state second, Illinois state third, and honest to goodness, I probably flip-flopped those two, four or five times before I published the preview because I really couldn't decide um, they, if, if there's going to be a second team in the Missouri Valley conference, it is probably going to have to be one of these two teams. And so and we are, and we're, and Joe and I are both on board with the idea that there will be, because DBU continues to be number one in RPI, which like, if they do that, if they do what they're supposed to do, they will host. I cannot imagine a one bid conference with a host, like somebody will rise up and yes, it will probably be one of these two teams. Yeah, I mean, they're the only ones that, so 
Indiana State has the record, right? I mean, they're 13 and seven. Their RPI is in the top 80 as we sit here today. Illinois State has some better stuff on the resume. Like they beat Arkansas, right? I mean, their RPI is 66 as we sit here today, but they're going to have to really make some hay in terms of like, like around a 500 Missouri Valley team is probably not getting in no matter what your wins are. And the RPI wouldn't be good enough anyway in that case. But so these two teams are in the best shape. Missouri State's the other one. They're 105 in the RPI. I just don't have as much confidence in that team getting there. But one of these two teams feels like, to Teddy's point, they're in position to do this because, because yes, if a team is number one in RPI and the Missouri Valley is number five in conference RPI, and okay, yes, that is because they have the number one team. I think that's probably the biggest factor in that. But it would be weird if you had a host team a top five, top 10 RPI team, and then nobody else. That would be, I, I would assume it'd be unprecedented. I do not have the data on that, but I have to assume that would be the case there. So I like Illinois State's talent more in this series, but I like Indiana State's kind of just moxie and the way they go about their business a little more. They're just the steadier program at this point, Indiana State is. Like no matter what's on the roster, no matter the turnover they have, and this year they had a ton of turnover on the mound, they just find a way, and this feels like, especially with it being at home, the kind of series that even if I like Illinois State's talent more, that Indiana State finds a way to win. And it just kind of is the way it is there. Um, I mean, there are things to like about them. I think their offense has swung the bat pretty well. Um, they have had some injuries offensively, and they kind of keep plugging and playing with guys out there. I think that's a good sign for just the, the quality depth they have in the lineup. They also returned a decent amount in the lineup, so it is a relatively veteran group there. Matt Jasek, their Friday guy, has been pretty good stepping in for Jeremy Guerrero. He's kind of similar to Guerrero in terms of it's just, it's not stuff, it's location, it's changing speeds, it's it's things like that. So um, he's been a really nice piece there. They're still figuring out the rest of it on the mound. And Illinois State, I mean, they, they have probably the best hitter on the board in Jake McCaw, um, and just a really, really good college hitter, just a, a professional type hitter. Um, they probably, they have the best raw talent on the board in Ryan Cermak, who, you know, is, we've talked about him before, you know, plus athlete, plus arm, you know, power hits for average plays a bunch of positions could pitch if they need him to. And then in the rotation, like they have the deeper rotation. When you talk about Sean Sinisco, Jordan Lucier, Derek Salata, those three guys haven't been on the mound in the rotation together in a few weeks. They are moving towards that. I have not seen an official rotation announcement from, uh, Illinois state yet. So I can't confirm that but it sure sounded like they were moving in that direction. So you add all that up and it feels like Illinois state should be the favorite here, even on the road. But again, like this is just an Indiana state team that wins, that wins these types of series. And so, you know, this one feels big in terms of not too dissimilar from what we talked about with Oklahoma and Baylor, where these are two teams that are kind of vying for the same thing right here. And if it's going to be, a tight finish the rest of the way. And the MVC does not play that many conference games. So these individual series do have a lot of weight. This feels like it could have a large bearing on, on what team it is that takes a step forward and announces itself as that second team in the MVC. I should note here uh, also very intriguing. If you're watching MVC stuff this weekend, uh, DBU is not in conference play this weekend. They're playing Wofford. And uh, if you're looking for DBU to take an RPI hit, it's not happening this weekend because Wofford's top 60. Uh, it, it is yet another very intriguing mid-major series that DBU has scheduled, um, and it could be a big deal for Wofford and, and the rest of the SoCon if uh, they were able to pull something off in Dallas, but 
Uh, that's what DBU is doing this weekend. Joe, you also hosted or analyzed or something. You can explain exactly what you did. The Missouri Valley uh, coaches teleconference, Twitter space, whatever. Uh, this week, what did what did Mitch Hanna say about this team? Because this is a team that has played a lot of road games to this point. They haven't played that much in Terre Haute. Uh, they've they've really challenged themselves. It's interesting that their record and RPI aren't quite I, like I, I it doesn't really match quite what they would have done. But this is a team that that always does this kind of thing. They they play a very challenging schedule. They play a ton of road games. Uh, they know what they're doing in terms of of building to to NBC play. Now, what are they? What is he looking for as as they get into uh, into conference play? Yeah, it sounded like just more consistency. Like he, Mitch Hannes is probably of all the coaches, not that any of the coaches I would describe, describe as misleading, but he is, he is the most brutally honest of all the ones we talked to. And, and yeah, I was co-hosting along with Shane Dennis, who does um, analysis for a lot of MVC games on ESPN plus he does analysis for the MVC tournament, um, former Wichita state pitcher. Um, so he's kind of the, the lead host there. So I'm, you know, co-hosting a, uh, just a, um, teleconference with, um, all the MVC coaches. It was streamed out there. You can find it on Twitter. I tweeted about it. If you're, if you're interested, um, I, I stopped short of calling myself like a master of ceremonies or something like that. Although, you know, if the shoe fits right, um, regardless, <laughs> Mitch Hannes is, um, he's probably the most brutally honest of all the coaches. Like he's, he's very honest about where his team is. And he was like, you know, I, I thought we were trending in a, in a good direction, but we've, we've kind of stubbed our toe a little bit. He's like, I liked where we were to start the season. We, you know, we beat, BYU, we played close with an Ohio State team that was playing well at the time, which which is true. At that point, Ohio State, I thought, was, was a team that was really playing pretty well. And I, I, you know, I've since been a little more disappointed in how Ohio State has played, but they they quit themselves well when they go to the LeClaire. They have one run loss to East Carolina. They beat Michigan. But, you know, he made it sound like this is still a team that's kind of figuring it, itself out. And some of that has been, you know, um, injuries he mentioned. But I think it's it, it sounded to me like a um, like a coach who was just kind of a little bit waiting to see his team be consistent from weekend from a weekend week out standpoint. And I can understand where he's coming from there just because that is the calling card of this program is that you, you kind of know what you're going to get. And I think he feels like he, they're at a point where they're not exactly sure what they're going to get week from week. Now the last two weekends, you know, against Memphis and, and Kansas, which, you know, aren't, aren't anything close to the best programs in those, those conferences they play in. They're close to the bottom. They are the top certainly, but you know, they've, they won four out of five against those programs that, that play in, in better leagues. So they are right now at this moment trending in, in the right direction. But I think he was a little bit confounded as to why um, it had not been a little bit easier for his team to this point. Big series this weekend. Um, yeah. I mean, like, like I said, the, Betting on the NBC to get a second bid is is the bet to make right now. We're still trying to figure out who that team is going to be besides DBU. Uh, and this weekend is going to go a long way to deciding that. So an intriguing one to watch there in Terre Haute. All right. A lot to watch around the country this weekend. Uh, some intriguing rivalries, some top 25 showdowns, uh, a lot of fun here. As, uh, as we move into April and, and get to the halfway point of the college season. So uh, we'll have it all covered for you over at BaseballAmerica.com throughout the weekend. You can also follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy, VA. And 
we will be back here on Monday with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, to recap it all, we go twice a week during the regular season, remember? Uh, so make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America College podcast, or the Baseball America podcast, rather, on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify. It's probably the only college baseball podcast where you can hear a dog attacking a cardboard box like several times a season in the background. Um, Millie, Millie really enjoys that. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, you aren't getting that anywhere else. Uh, you gotta, you gotta subscribe to the Baseball America podcast for that one. Uh, we'll be back here on Monday. Maybe Millie will have another cardboard box by then. We'll see. Uh, until then, enjoy the baseball this weekend. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. For Joe, I'm Teddy. Thanks for listening. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.